You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So with giving season right around the corner, we have started asking ourselves, how can we make a bigger impact? And not just at the end of the year, but maybe year round. We all have causes that we care about, but when does it make sense to take donating your money or your time or your resources a step further? When does it make sense to start a charity or a not-for-profit of your own? To help us answer these questions, we are sitting down with Scott Harrison. And Scott, as I'm sure many of you know, is founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization Charity Water, which focuses on the global water crisis and the world's 663 million people who do not have clean water to drink. In 12 years, with the help of more than 1 million donors worldwide, Charity Water has raised more than $320 million. It's funded 30,000 water projects in 26 countries. And when you add it all up, these projects will provide nearly 9 million people with clean, safe drinking water, which is incredible. He is here because he is about to embark on a book tour for his very first book, Thirst. Scott, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, especially considering that you had flashbacks when you walked into our studio. I know. I'm sitting in the same spot where I recorded the audiobook, which was 25 kind of painful hours. And I would go home and say, I'm so tired of my own voice. I know. I know. It's very hard. I've done audiobooks. That's actually how we ended up at this studio because I've done audiobooks here for. Boy, I think three of my last books. It does and sound good here. It sounds good <laughs> and everybody's here. Everybody's nice. They're really nice. They make pretty good coffee. So we are um, we're happy to have you. I want to start with learning a little bit more about you. Your journey to Charity Water is a very interesting one. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, not not traditional. No. Um, well, there were really three acts to my life. I grew up uh, in uh, New Jersey. Um, I was an only child in a in a family with um, a really tragic event. When I was four, there was a carbon monoxide gas leak in our home, and um, it, this this almost killed our whole family. It wound up um, destroying my mom's immune system and her health forever. So, you know, I grew up in in the church, this good Christian kid taking care of mom. I was in a caregiver role, and then at eighteen, Act Two started, and I discovered New York City. And rebelled and just lived out the cliche kind of prodigal son. Uh, I'm going to live the opposite way. You were a party promoter. I was. I worked at 40 nightclubs. Wow. I I wanted to be the king of New York. My aspiration was to be the the number one person in New York nightlife. I probably got to top eight uh, (laughs) over 10 years. But, you know, uh, as you might imagine, I picked up all the the bad vices that come with, you know, going to a club at 10, not leaving until four in the morning and and sometimes, you know, even, even worse. So, you know, I smoked, I drank, I gambled. Gambled. I, you know, frequented strip clubs and had just had a, a cocaine and a real drug problem 
and you know really had a had walked away from any of the spirituality or or morality or virtue you know that had been brought up with and after 10 years i just i had this realization that if I continue down this path of just selfishness and hedonistic living, there would never be enough. I mean, someone would always have more money. They would always have a maybe a, a prettier girlfriend or a better car or a private plane. And it was this this search of more that was just destroying me inside. Was there a moment that caused you to say, I can't do this anymore? Was there one, yeah. one moment? Well, there were a couple. There was a, there was a moment in South America um, of realization, and, and I was on this opulent vacation, and I just remember we'd spent $1,000 at the fireworks store. There were magnums of Dom Perignon. There were servants waiting on us. Uh, horses in the background. My girlfriend was in the cover of a fashion magazine. I drove the BMW. I had the Rolex watch. I had the Labrador Retriever. All of these things, all these markers that I'd collected, and I just realized um, they would never bring me happiness. And somehow, almost you know, slowly but suddenly, I'd become morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. So there was really this cathartic realization. It's almost like the game of musical chairs um, where the music stops and for the first time I'm looking around and there's nowhere to sit. I felt disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, I came back six months later trying to find uh, a new life. And there was a moment in nightlife um, that I write about in the book involving guns. And it was a really interesting moment, which gave me the space to leave New York for a couple weeks and ask the question, what might the opposite of my life look like? If I were to make a 180-degree turn, not a pivot, not a 45- or 90-degree turn, but what would the opposite look like? What would it look like to serve others? What would it look like to actually pursue virtue instead of vice? It took you to West Africa asking Mm -hmm. that question, where you spent some time as a volunteer photojournalist. Tell yeah, us a so, little bit about that. Well, well, when I asked the answer, what's the opposite of my life look like? The, the, the when I asked the question, the answer to that question was sell everything I own, quit all the bad stuff that I was doing, and and try and focus one year on serving others, a year of humanitarian support. So I applied to all these famous organizations to volunteer that I'd heard of over the years, and no one will take me. So no one will take you. No, You're I'm volunteering. A club I know, but I, on paper, they don't understand what a club promoter even is or how that would be useful in their context. I mean, these are serious humanitarians. Hello, marketing. Right? So, so <laughs> well, there you go. So I eventually get a communications job. The, the one organization says to me, hey, Scott, if you're willing to pay us $500 a month, so, so not even volunteering, we want you to actually pay us, and if you're willing to go live in post-war Liberia, which was the poorest country in the world at that time, um, why don't you come on as our photojournalist and you can take photos and you can tell stories? This was, in some ways, the job that I was meant for. Sure. I've been throwing parties at 40 clubs. I had a guest list of 15,000 people. Uh, on my email list, you know, this was back when email open rates were like 100%. So I, I realized that I would be able to tell a completely different story. And setting foot on, you know, first of all, I did quit. I sold everything I owned. Um, I did quit smoking and never smoked again or gambled again or touched Coke or any of that stuff. So I walked away from that lifestyle. And that allowed me to step into this really different and, and new story for my life. How did being in Africa inspire Charity Water. I mean, what did you see that brought this organization about? Well, I was with a group of humanitarian doctors and surgeons um, who were effectively 
giving up their vacation time and using their medical skills in service of, of people who just couldn't afford access to medical care. So I saw a lot. I saw facial tumors and cleft lips and trachoma and cataracts. I saw leprosy. But the one thing I saw that just that stuck with me was the fact that people were drinking dirty water. As I went into these villages, I saw children drinking brown, viscous water that looked like chocolate milk. This is water that I wouldn't let an animal drink, let alone a child. And I learned that 50% of the country had no access to clean water. So I really found my way to charity water or the water crisis by way of health. I mean, if you really want to make people well, how about starting with the most basic need? And as you said, 660 million people live without it. So one out of every 10 people alive is, is drinking dirty water today, risking their life and their health simply because of the conditions they were born into. And, and I didn't get to choose being born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia any more than someone got to, to choose being born in a village in Liberia with no water. It is, um, it's amazing how when we take a step back and when we want to solve truly massive global problems, it's the little things. It's and and not that water is a little thing, but it's the more the basic, things. the basic things. Bill Gates, you woke up yesterday to the fact that Bill Gates had endorsed your book, basically said everybody needs to read this story. And I'm struck by the fact that when the Gates Foundation decided what they were going to do first, it was mosquito nets mm-hmm. for malaria. Yep. And you know, I've I've had the opportunity to sit with him before. He, they're really focused on sanitation too. So water and sanitation go hand in hand. So over a billion people don't have a toilet. So in fact, if you look at the developing world or what some people might call the third world, 52% of all disease 52% of the people are sick because they don't have clean water and access to a toilet and, and hygiene. So, um, you know, the Gates Foundation is, in some ways, sanitation is much harder, right? For getting a kid to sell lemonade to build a toilet is a lot harder than getting a kid to sell lemonade to provide clean drinking water for other children. I want to dig into the launch of this organization because I think there are a lot of people listening who think I've got a passion. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to do something and maybe I want to do something big. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that her money is supported by Fidelity Investments and our shared mission is to get you talking about money and inspiring you to be in the financial front seat. So whether you are entering the workforce, running a business, raising a family, starting a charity, Fidelity has tools and resources that can help you understand where you are today and get where you want to go tomorrow. And you can find more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Scott Harrison, founder and CEO of Charity Water and author of the new book, Thirst. So I know from your book that you got your very first donations from a big birthday party Mm -hmm. that you threw for yourself. Was that the first step in launching? I think the first step was actually talking to people and doing some just casual market research and realizing that um, if I wanted to make a dent in the water crisis, if I truly wanted to raise awareness and, and money to solve something that, that feels paralyzingly big, um, I would need a lot of everyday people to get involved. And as I talked to my friends, I realized there was this huge distrust 
with charity. There was a cynicism. There was a skeptical positioning toward charity. And I, I'd come across a, I think it was a USA Today poll that found 42% of Americans distrust charity. Wow. And NYU Stern polled Americans and found 70% said they believe charities either wasted money or badly wasted money. And this shocks people, right? Because no one's more generous than Americans. Right. We have this cultural heritage of philanthropy. But 70% of the people polled think charities do the wrong thing. With, with their money. money. And the biggest objection I kept hearing was, charities are black holes. Uh, my money goes to overhead. I don't actually know how much is going to reach the people in that last mile, the people I'm trying to serve. And I thought, well, what if there was a way to solve this problem um, so dramatically? What if I could open up two bank accounts and make this promise to the public that 100% of whatever they gave, whether it was $1 or $100 or a $1 million, 100% of that would directly fund water projects that would give people clean water. And then in bank account number two, we'd raise the overhead separately. We'd try and go find a very small group of, of visionary philanthropists or donors to say, hey, I'll pay for your toner for the Epson mm -hmm. copy machine, or I'll pay for your staff or the 401k or the insurance or the office rent or the flights. So we opened up these bank accounts that would be audited separately. And then we realized um, we'd actually just created a non-fungible business model so we could prove where those public donations went. So if a, a child gave $10, we could track the $10 and say, here's where your $10 went. It went to Malawi or it went to you know, Bangladesh, and here's a satellite image of the well that you paid for. You hear the GPS coordinates. So proof became this pillar um, that was really important for us. And as you said, we launched with a party in a nightclub. And I just said, hey, 700 people, come to my birthday party. And please throw $20 in this plexi bucket on the way in. And I promised that 100% of the money would build our first projects in northern Uganda. And that night, we raised $15,000. And instead of you know, the old days, I would have put 15 grand cash in my back pocket and maybe jumped on a plane. But we took 100% of this money to a refugee camp to build our first projects. And then we sent the photos of the completed projects, video of clean water flowing, and the satellite images back to those 700 people. And we said, you did this. Yep. They were blown away. I mean, people never expected to hear from a charity. They had just gone to a party. They threw 20 bucks in. And we said, this is, we're on to something. If we can show people the impact of their small donations, we can build community. We can restore faith. We can take cynical people and say, hey, look, give this a shot. Trust again. We can reach out to the 70% who don't trust. And, and we thought that we'd be doing something even greater by involving them in a mission of giving. I mean, I believe they were depriving themselves. Their cynicism was actually hurting themselves and depriving themselves of the chance to be a blessing to others, to serve. It can get very, very frustrating. I had the experience this past year of sending some money to a hospital that focuses on um, with researchers that focus on congenital heart disease, which is important to me because my son was born with one. And I wrote in the memo for my gift that I wanted the money to be in the hands of this particular doctor, that he needed to direct where it went. It became very complicated, very fast. And just to know, just to see the impact that your donations are having, I think is, is pretty incredible. Yeah, and I think that's led to all of this growth and, um, you know, the, the reason we've been able to raise a third of a billion dollars is we just told people, here's where your money's going to go and here's what it's accomplishing. Have you had trouble raising money for the other account? It's so hard. 
It's so hard. Um, I have. And in fact, you know, when I mentor social entrepreneurs these days, I try and talk them out of our model. Yeah. What I really believe, uh, Gene, is that um, donors are open to a bunch of different value propositions. And if I told you right now that the front door of my office was broken, people would want to fix it. They actually would want to respond to a need. It's the not knowing. It's the opacity of the sector. You know, it's the the fact that you might give during a disaster response and the fine print says, oh, we're going to over-raise billions, right, and put your money somewhere completely different and put it in an endowment. That's what people don't want. So for us, the, the 100% model was unique in just solving this once and for all um, and, and allowing people never to make that excuse. But it's really hard. So I spend a lot of my time um, raising money on the overhead side. We now have 80 full-time employees. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's big, a big organization. organization. You know, we'll raise $70 million this year. And the way that we have kept that 100% model intact is through 131 families. So 101, 131 families um, on three-year terms pay for the overhead. And they give, you know, at levels of 60000 a year up to a million a year. And it's an amazing group of people. I mean, it's the founders of Facebook, Twitter, Spotify. It's senior executives at Apple. It's venture capitalists. It's, you know, visionary people in Hollywood. Um, it's, it's families in the South that just say, hey, um, I'm actually okay with that bank account. I'm okay to pay those staff salaries in the office because I know where my money's going. And I want to help you build this thing. And I realize how powerful the 100% is. I mean, there was a, a little girl in Vancouver, um, a six-year-old, who just did 12 lemonade stands. And what was so compelling to her was that she knew when she was out there selling lemonade for 50 cents, she could say, all 50 cents is going to help people get clean water. And she did 12 lemonade stands in a row, um, one of them in the rain. You know, her oh, mom was trying to get her to come in. She's like, no, I'm going to you know, I'm gonna sell lemonade in the rain. And at her 12th lemonade stand, she convinces a local band to perform on the sidewalk. So all in, she raises over $5,600. Wow. And when she sends us that $5,600, it's amazing to know that it, it doesn't get stepped on. And those 130 families love that. There was a little girl that just sent $8.15 of her allowance into the office, and she drew a picture of her standing next to a well in Africa with clean water coming out. And she said, Dear Charity Water, I want kids to stop dying of bad water. And, you know, a little girl from Virginia, $8.15. So knowing that we can take all $8.15 and then track that for her is really powerful. So take a step back and tell me the message that you give to these social entrepreneurs. Somebody wants to start an organization. What do you tell them about doing it themselves versus tapping into one of the millions of charities that already exist? Well, I try and normally gauge their their passion. <laughs> you know, is this something they're going to be passionate about 10 years from now? Or did they go on, you know, a trip, maybe a mission trip to, I don't know, South America, and they saw some poverty? And, you know, I'm trying to get, like, are you are you in this? You know, mm-hmm. did, this, did this change your life? And for me, I lived for two years on this humanitarian mission. So when I came back, I came back changed, transformed. There was a deep responsibility to do something about what I'd seen for the rest of my life. This wasn't a, like, I'm going to take a year off and do some charity work. This was all in for me. This was transformative. So I'm always trying to gauge, are they in this for the long run? Because if they're in it for the long run, um, then I might tell them, hey, go start your own thing. Count the cost, because it'll be so much harder than you ever, ever imagined. Um, but uh, you know, if someone says, I'm going to do this part-time, I said, join something else. Yeah. Go find someone else who's already doing this, who is all in, you know, who put in the 80-hour startup weeks, who, who is 
has been through, you know, has been battle tested. And then go join them. Give your money there. Uh, give your time there. So I'd, I'd say 80% of the people I'm telling to support something else. And then I'll just see that spark. And I'm like, I know this entrepreneur is fighting for, you know, against world hunger or fighting for shelter or fighting for justice 10 or 20 years from now. And I'll try and encourage them to go for it. Scott Harrison, the book is Thirst. It is a must read. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we'll be right back. And Kelly is with me in the studio, our producer, Kelly Hultgren. That was fascinating. He has such a cool story. He's such a cool guy. He is. You know, he's one of those. I understand both how he was a very successful concert promoter, club promoter. Club promoter. Different than being a concert (laughs) promoter. I get that. And I also get how he has been successful in raising a lot of money for this cause because I was ready to write him a check. I know. Well, and also it dates back. His story of his childhood is really sad, but it, to me, it, it's just an example of his resilience. Yeah, absolutely. His mental toughness. And he just seems like such a genuine and honest person. And he has a really cool video that we'll post in the show description graph that kind of takes you back and gives you a visual story of what he just told us. And it's really beautiful. And to see the water that they're cleaning the water that he described, it is heartbreaking, and that alone has been inspired to participate. Yeah. No, absolutely. Sometimes you have to be there, I think, to feel it. Mm-hmm. I, I've um, supported the food bank in my town for a long time because I don't know why, but there's so – I mean, there are so many heartbreaking causes mm-hmm. in this world, but to me – the idea that people who live around the corner might not have enough to eat is especially heartbreaking. Yeah. And when he was in Africa and was living among these people who were not drinking clean water, look, I, I get it. How how can you be so fortunate in an environment where people are not? And I think it's what you just said is something I've been trying to focus on, too. It's it's easy to think globally or focus on more global causes, especially ones that have such striking numbers, like the ones that he has with the millions of people who go without clean water. But it's also important to look in your backyard and Mm -hmm. to see what's around the corner from you and how we can help here too and have that balance. I'm working on it myself. I don't know. I can't think of the last time I donated to a global cause, but I've been focused more domestically. Yeah. But I think Charity Water might be my next one. It's a good one. (laughs) It's a good one. All right. What do we have from our mailbag? And before we get to our mailbag, you know, with the launch of hermoney.com, we have a bunch of new places for people to find us. Mm-hmm. I think we should just tell everybody what's going on. So That's a great idea. We launched hermoney.com. If you haven't gone on hermoney.com, we are really, really happy with this site. Mm-hmm. I think it's beautiful. And I'm just saying. Yes. And <laughs> no bias. No, no bias <laughs> at all. But there's new content going up every single day about your money, mm-hmm. about all facets of your money. And so if you're not on our newsletter list, you want to subscribe because then we'll be able to push that content to you and you'll be able to click on what you want to read and, and it'll make it very, very easy. And it really is, if you enjoy this podcast, and we hope that you do, it really is just a bigger platform inspired by this show. Yeah. So we took the same approach. We lead with life and it comes back to focusing on like all facets of our life and how money touches everything 
everything. And of course, we have some heavy money content or heavy money conversations on the site as well. But if you like the show and the approach we take here, it's the approach we're taking with the site. Yeah. And we've got that Hermione private Facebook group. Mm-hmm. So if you're not in there, We've got a lot of really great conversations going. Oh, my gosh, yes. And we have the Facebook page now, too. So we have a Facebook page in addition to the closed group. We have an Instagram. We have a Twitter. We have a YouTube channel that we're building out with video content. We are growing up. We are a media company. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. And keep your questions coming. Very, very easy for you to do that. You can ask them in any of those forums. We will pick them up and try to get as many as we can on the air. And including these. First, we'll do one from Jessica. Hi, Jean and Kelly. Thank you for all of the great work that you do. I look forward to listening to you every week. That is very sweet. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. I have a question about health care plans. My father recently lost his job. He's 61 years old, not yet eligible for Medicare. My mom is 56 and doesn't have employer-sponsored health insurance. They were both under my dad's health insurance. We've looked into COBRA, but it is incredibly expensive, about $1,200 a month for the premium to continue his insurance plan. Is there another place you can recommend? We are also exploring marketplace plans. I hope to find something soon for them. They both have pre-existing conditions, so I do not want them to go without coverage. Yes, you absolutely do not want them to go without coverage. This bridge to Medicare for people who have stepped back from their day job is really, really difficult. Don't give up COBRA until you find something else. Cut back in other areas. Help your parents financially if you have to. And in addition to shopping on the exchanges themselves, you can look at marketplaces like eHealthInsurance.com, which has a lot of great information about shopping for plans in addition to the plans themselves. If your parents end up with a plan that is attached to a health savings account or gives them the opportunity to open a health savings account, make sure you go ahead and do that, open it. And even if all you're doing is running health expenses through it, it will save you about 25% on the cost of your health care expenses through the year. That may or may not be the best way to go for your parents with these pre-existing conditions. They may be better off with a more traditional plan. But bottom line is rally your siblings. If you have siblings, do not let them go uninsured. Mm. Good luck, Jessica. Keep us posted. We'll do one from Carrie. My question is, I have 14 shares of a gaming slash entertainment stock from a part-time job I had many, many years ago. It's worth just a couple hundred dollars, and I'm not sure what to do with it. To be honest, I've always kind of forgotten about it. I recently rediscovered it, and now I'm curious, should I keep it, sell it, or something else? Additionally, I earned the stock before I got married, so it's still under my maiden name. Does that matter? Can I change that somehow? Okay, the last part of your question is the easy part. (laughs) You should be able to just deal with it under your maiden name because what I'm going to suggest, Carrie, is that you sell it. I think you should sell it and use the opportunity to buy a stock or make an investment that you are interested in. The fact that you say that you've forgotten about this means that you have essentially missed an opportunity to take some play money because this is this is play money. Mm-hmm. This is not money that you need. This is not money that you're using. This is just money that was sitting on the sidelines that somebody, some employer gave you for your good work a number of years ago. <laughs> 
Figure out, do you want to be the kind of person who puts the money in an individual stock? Is there a company that you're interested in? Or would you like to buy a mutual fund? Would you like to buy an index fund? Would you just like to put the money into the S&P 500 and watch how the S&P 500 moves? The dirty little secret about investing is that when you have investments, all of a sudden you're more interested in those (laughs) investments, especially if they're investments that you picked yourself rather than investments that somebody gave you. So I would suggest using this to get yourself a little investment education. So many sports idioms come to mind. Well, look, yes, so many. And for me, the one I always go back to is the Little League baseball game. Because if you have kids, you know that when you go to Little League Baseball, if if your kid is not playing, that game is deadly boring. (laughs) Like, you would just rather be any place. Why would you want to watch a bunch of eight-year-olds round the bases when you don't have an eight-year-old rounding the bases, right? You just don't. And even if they're your niece or nephew, I swear you're not so (laughs) interested. But... If you've got a kid on the field, uh-huh. you know, you've got a grandkid on the field, maybe you do. Maybe you are heavily involved in the life of your niece and nephew and you are coming out to root for that kid. <laughs> you got a kid on the field, then all of a sudden that baseball game is the World Series. And mm. investing is like that. You have to have a stake at the table in order for it to mean something to you. What's the Gretzky quote? I don't know. You'll miss all the shots you don't take. Uh People are going to give me so much hate if I butchered that. But yes, that one also comes to mind. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Carrie. Let us know what you do. We'll do one more from Andrea. My question is regarding credit and credit freezes. I froze my credit with all three bureaus per your advice. Woohoo. Nice. Recently, I unfroze my accounts and Equifax sent me a freeze confirmation letter to a six-year-old address, my grandparents' home, saying that was my current address on file. When I look at my information on Credit Karma, the current address is correct. When I update an address with the credit card company, Shouldn't that pass along to the bureaus? Well, it should. Yeah. But um, it doesn't always happen that way. And this we know because an astounding number of people have errors on their credit reports. And those errors are, in most cases, not things that are going to cause your score to go way down. But they are errors like this, which can be a nuisance because what would happen if your grandparents didn't live at that address? Then you would never have received that. So... Time to go to each of the credit bureaus individually, check your report, and you can just file with them for a correction. They have 30 days to make the change. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before, too, but my accounts are frozen as well, and I recently moved, and I initiated the address change with USPS and on my credit cards. I think one of them actually corrected for me on its own, but what happened with my accounts being frozen is all the bureaus did what they were supposed to do and notify me that information had changed on my report. Know that if you move, that is probably an instance when you'll receive notifications from then. I didn't know that, and so I freaked out big time multiple times because <laughs> it all comes flooding in <laughs> it at does. once. And so it just keep that in mind, like those changes too, like do you have the repercussion if you have your accounts frozen? But the other thing I want to say about the unfreezing mm. is it's not such a big deal. In no. fact, that's what we're going to talk about in today's Thrive <laughs> segment. All right. 
If you haven't frozen your credit, it is time to do it right now because you can do it for free. As of late September, credit freezes at the three big bureaus, that's Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. They're free for everyone, including kids. And parents now have the option to freeze their child's credit as long as the child is under age 16. If you're unfamiliar, the freezes that Kelly and I have been talking about prevent your credit file from being reviewed. In that way, they stop scammers from taking out new lines of credit in your name, and they stop you from becoming a victim of one of the most egregious forms of identity theft. In other words, it's one of those rare freebies that you actually need, and I am quoting Susan Tompor, who writes for USA Today. Once your credit is frozen, you're going to get a PIN number. And that PIN number will allow you to freeze and unfreeze your credit as desired. You want to hang on to it. You're going to have to get it resent to you by snail mail. If you lose it, it's a pain in the neck. So make sure you put it somewhere safe. And per the new law, whenever you call to freeze your credit or unfreeze your credit, it has to happen no later than the next business day. And per the new law, whenever you call to freeze your credit, it has to happen no later than the next business day. And when you call to unfreeze, the bureaus have to lift the freeze within the hour, which may be really useful if you are standing, let's say, at an auto dealer and trying to secure financing for a new car. As somebody who's been through the both freezing and unfreezing process, I do want to tell you lifting your credit is no big deal. And you don't necessarily have to go back in and refreeze. When you lift, you tell them, lift it for a week, lift it for two weeks, however long you think it's going to take you to secure that financing, and then it automatically goes back on. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Scott Harrison for the inspiration. Just a reminder, his book is called Thirst. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We really, really, really like to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with another great guest and we'll talk soon.